Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, should pipelines in the energy sector be federal election issues this fall? The Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers hopes so. They've released their federal energy platform. Also, we heard from one Inglewood business owner about her shocking property tax increase and the concern now moving forward for businesses in that neighborhood and other parts of the city. A look at Alberta's forest fire problem. Is it getting worse and what can we do about it? Plus, speaking of getting worse, Timothy Caulfield joins us for a chat about countering medical misinformation. No small task in this day and age. Well, tomorrow marks two weeks, two weeks from what is supposed to be an announcement from the federal government with regard to the Trans Mountain Pipeline project, uh, whether or not this project is going to go ahead. Uh, So we're all kind of waiting with beta breath ahead of uh, June 18th to find out where this all goes from here. But I mean, obviously, what's happening with Trans Mountain speaks to a a bigger issue, right? Canada's uh, ability to develop energy infrastructure. For Canada to be uh, an international leader when it comes not just to oil and gas, but when it comes to responsibly producing oil and gas. So we're, we're kind of at a crossroads of sorts. Um, as we await a decision on Trans Mountain, we've got a really interesting new uh, report from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, their new federal energy platform, Oil and Natural Gas Priorities, Putting Canada on the World Stage. And how we can seize this opportunity that's before us. Joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program, Tim McMillan, President and CEO of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Tim, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Let's talk about the timing of this. Uh, obviously, we've got a lot going on this this year. I mean, with uh, a decision on Trans Mountain to come, we've got uh, an election later this year where I'm sure a lot of these issues are going to be discussed. So what, what's what's the timing of this release today? Well, it's very much targeted at the federal election that uh, we brought out a platform before the Alberta election. We've done it in other provinces. And as uh, October 24th, uh, Election Day, is about four months away, we wanted to get out and hopefully inform the the policies that each party will bring out, but also inform Canadians about the issues that they should be thinking about and engaging with their candidates on their doorsteps and at town halls over the next few months as well. What is so pivotal about this this moment we're at and, and the opportunity that's there for Canada to seize? Well, global demand for oil and gas are at an all-time high, and they're growing at uh, near record rates. Canada, unfortunately, has been increasingly being bypassed by global investment. And uh, what we put out in our platform is a vision for Canadians to truly understand what that opportunity looks like. Uh, it, it means that we could 
double our capital investment, we could create jobs, that uh, Eastern Canada could have access to Western Canadian resources, so they're not importing LNG uh, into Atlantic Canada, or their refineries could be fueled by Canadian resources instead of Saudi resources. Um, We talk about uh, what it could mean to our economy and jobs so that everybody can be informed and hopefully um, be pushing all political parties to have strong energy uh, platforms. What about those who say that, you know, when it comes to international leadership, it's it's the environment that we need to lead on, that, that there are concerns about the environment, concerns about climate change, and, you know, the, the perspective that it's kind of an either-or when it comes to this. Does it have to be? Yeah, a great question. And that's why we wanted to be out and proactive about this, that uh, Canada has the highest environmental uh, performance when it comes to large energy producers, that we are, take uh, tech take second place from no one. And uh, with global demand continuing to increase, the next barrel of oil or gigajoule of gas going into India or China should be coming from Canada. And when it comes to climate specifically, um, Canadian LNG, uh, liquefied natural gas, has the lowest emission profile of any gas in the world. And in fact, by offsetting coal that's being built out in the electric sector in China and India today, we actually can reduce global emissions by a very substantial amount. Well, and yeah, I mean, that, you know, look at the LNG Canada uh, proposal as an example, where it's, you know, it's, it is a win-win in that sense. The economic opportunity of a project like that, but the ability to displace much dirtier sources of energy in, in countries like China and parts of Asia, I mean, that, that's, that's big. In fact, in our platform and in a piece of work we did earlier in the year that we referenced in our platform, that Canada has almost no chance of reaching our Paris Climate Agreement uh, commitments unless we enable large-scale LNG and we get 50% of the credits of offsetting coal in China. And uh, that's a reality. That's something that we should be aspiring to. And I think that all political parties should be putting that into their platforms as well, that we are global leaders and we have global solutions, and those global solutions can help us meet our commitments that we've already made. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another issue where these kinds of projects can be a win-win, and it's part of the platform, talks about Indigenous prosperity. And, you know, there's there's been talk about some Indigenous involvement and ownership stake potentially in, in the Trans Mountain uh, project, but but you know more broadly talking about these partnerships between industry and, and First Nations, where, where does that fit in? Um, it's certainly an important part of our platform, something we are very explicit about, and it's something that uh, I think over the last year we have seen the public uh, consciousness of change substantially with uh, the number of Aboriginal businesses, uh, Aboriginal uh, leaders that have been speaking out about the importance of energy issues. And I'm actually in Ottawa today, and I just walked past a billboard that uh, I believe is the IRC, the Indian Resource Council, has a billboard here saying that they do not support Bill C-69 because it uh, will affect the prosperity of the communities that they represent. Yeah. Well, I mean, further to C-69, certainly, you know, we've been talking about a lot of different uh, regulatory issues, uh, policy issues. I mean, you know, things like the drop in oil price, court cases, they're a little bit outside of our control. But, but, you know, these kinds of of issues definitely are within our control. So what's been happening on the regulatory and the policy front that's that's created problems or potentially creates problems? Yeah, when we look at the capital investment in Canada having fallen since 2014 from over $80 billion a year to today less than 40. So it's less than half of what we were. We can blame it on global energy prices, but 
global energy prices have bounced back. Um, most of that decline is self-inflicted wounds that Canada alone has done and lack of market access, um, the regulatory system that is long and slow and duplicative. Um, we need to position ourselves for success, not for mediocrity or failure. And uh, it's going to take political leadership. And I think elections are a time where Canadians can, can re-up and, and give a mandate to governments that this is a priority for us. And that's why we're going to be so active in the coming months. Well, you know, a lot can happen between now and then. Obviously, as I mentioned at the outset, we're expecting a decision in a couple of weeks uh, on Trans Mountain. Um, what, what's your sense of where things stand on that front? You know, I, I think very good. It is a, an excellent project. It's a pipeline that has a long track record. The the company has benefit agreements with the First Nations and other communities all along the, the route. So it's very well positioned. Um, ultimately, though, the federal government now owns that project and needs to get it under construction. And we should take nothing for granted until it is under construction and ultimately built. All right. Well, in the meantime, people can read more about the platform. VoteEnergy.ca is the website. Tim, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Thank All you. Right. Uh, that is Tim McMillan, President and CEO of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Their website is cap.ca. But you can read more about this platform, some of the ideas they want to get uh, on the table ahead of the fall election at VoteEnergy.ca. The importance of addressing market access, regulatory policy, indigenous prosperity, fiscal and tax policy, but also climate and environmental innovation. You go to voteenergy.ca. A lot of talk in recent days from the mayor and city councilors about how important it is that they work together to try to figure out what to do about the tax crunch they are facing. But of course, this talk comes after the fact, as in after these tax notices have been sent out to businesses. Well, in fact, sent out to everybody, but certainly for businesses, the sticker shock that they're seeing on their new tax assessments is leading many to to question what, what future they have. Do they have a future in their neighborhood? Do they have a future in Calgary? Otherwise, how do they cope with this? Right? Because for a lot of businesses, this just isn't uh, you know, a, a modest little increase in their business tax. It's a doubling or even more so of what they're paying each month. And where's that going to come from? Something's got to give. And so it's put a lot of business owners in a really, really tough position. And if city council is acknowledging that maybe there's a way out of this, it's basically an acknowledgement that it didn't need to get to this point. And so I'm sure business owners would love to hear some kind of a solution. They're hoping for a solution. In the meantime, what they've got in front of them and the number on that bill, that's what they have to deal with. And in particular, I want to talk about what's going on in Inglewood. Now, I know Inglewood's not technically downtown. It seems close enough to downtown in the East Village that it's really strange to me. That with the plunging values in downtown, that somehow we'd be seeing skyrocketing valuations in Inglewood. But as a result of that, that's meant a lot of businesses in Inglewood are getting walloped. In fact, the building where next guest has her business based, the tax bill has gone from 1500 a month to 6400 a month. 1500 a month to 6400 a month. That's that's a lot. 
That's a lot. So how do they deal with this? Joining us to talk uh, more about all this, very pleased to welcome the program. Kelly Duty was founder and owner of Social School in Inglewood, socialschool.io. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. Uh, so when, when did you get this information? Well, I happen to have a really transparent, um, friendly landlord who's been a business owner and landlord himself in the neighborhood for mm. quite some time. So he let me know that the assessment came down in, um, well, when, when they were sent out earlier in the year and that it was bad. But I didn't know at the time that the billion, it's not really my business, but I suppose it is. Right. The building valuation went from 811000 last year to $2.2 million. So it wasn't until we received a tax bill last week, and I just happened to be carrying garbage out of my shop on a Saturday, and he was up on the roof of the building beside, and I said, Daryl, what's the damage? And he shouted, it's as bad as you can possibly imagine, Kelly. Your building got walloped. And so I found out on Saturday, and I took to social media on Sunday. So you were, you were expecting uh, a hit, but were, was it still a shock to you when you saw that number? Well, to be honest, I've got I've I've got a business to run. I wasn't expecting a hit. I didn't. I don't. There's so little transparency that as a, a business owner and a and a, someone running my household bills, I saw what that increase was. I swallowed mm-hmm. hard and I accepted it. Um, but no, I, I had no idea because how are we as commercial leaseholders, small business owners, supposed to have any clue about what's about to hit? What people don't understand is this. You know that that in a commercial lease that the tenant, small business owner, pays 100% of the property tax, but most of us don't see that until an adjustment at the end of the year or the lease term where we get a $50,000 bill in the mail. In my past tenancies, that's been a $1,300 bill. But at this point, it'll be, you know, I'll, I'll start paying it monthly because I'll, that's, I can't afford 50K at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so a whole lot of factors. How, how are you supposed to deal with this? That, that's what I, I find so hard to fathom is where, where business mm-hmm. is supposed to find all of this money. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, someone asked me that yesterday and it was the first time I sort of had tears in my eyes because you go, well, wait, yeah, I guess I, is this, is, this really is real. Um, for us, we're going to be okay. We have a really viable online business and it's eight years in the making. Our space in Inglewood is new, but um, I guess for me, I, I'm tired of rolling over and I sure don't mind being the voice of it to expose our numbers. It's unnerving. Nobody wants to stand up and say, here's my rent. Here's my tax. Like, look at me. Woe is me. Um, but if it means that other people are going to pull back the kimono, as they say, and talk about what they pay in rent, for us, it's 3000 a month market value for second floor reach, or, uh, office space in Inglewood. And now we're paying 3200 a month in property tax. When people actually see those numbers, and I don't even just mean, you know, general citizens. I mean, other business owners. I had a number of friends yesterday text me and say, Kelly, I feel like such an idiot, but I don't even know where to look for these property tax numbers because they're buried in my ops costs or my additional rent costs, which they are. I just happen to know our lease really well and know where to find them and have a landlord willing to share them with me. So this building that you're in, uh, so the, the valuation has more than doubled. And, and that's what seems really strange, that maybe it is a valuable piece of property. But for it to go from 800000 to $2.2 million, mm-hmm. how, how is that possible? Yeah, that, Rob, you've hit it right on the head. That's where I, every explanation that's been emailed to me from both my, you know, my counselor who's doing, I think, the best he can and from other people well-meaning at the city, it just, I, I feel like I'm, I'm taking crazy pills because if you can tell me, hypothetically, that the bow tower is suddenly worth two-thirds of what it was if it went on the market tomorrow because it's got, you know, just lower vacancy rates and lower market value, et cetera, and yet you can tell me that my two-story cinder block 1955 building in Inglewood um, that I put, yes, 100 k into, shame on me, has gone up $1.3 million overnight. 
um, it just doesn't stand. It is. It, I said to a friend of mine who owns a restaurant on 10th Ave downtown-ish uh, yesterday, I said, Charlie, what's your damage? Um, you know, I'm just trying to figure out where the pillage line stops. Is it just around the shiny towers that are all getting a break, truly? And I'm not afraid to say it out loud because it's happening. Or is it just outside the core? Like, where's the radius? Where does it end? And why has Inglewood, as many business owners, again, are saying behind the scenes and they're afraid to say out loud, but I'll say it. They're being, it feels like it's been unfairly targeted and that all our, all of our little old buildings have been suddenly redesignated as class one buildings from class three. We used to be like right one step up from a class four, which is basically like almost uninhabitable, dilapidated from what I understand. Again, I'm a tenant. I'm mm-hmm. not privy to this, but I do know that, that my landlord and other business owners and building owners in the neighborhood have said, yep, we're suddenly a class one, like shiny new build which is just crazy because nobody's putting work into their buildings right now. Right. So, th- so this is other businesses, other buildings in Inglewood are dealing with the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Across the board, whether it's, um, you know, they know it yet or not. What I felt really bad about yesterday is I, I wish that my neighbors at Stash and Plant, and I mean, I called out Recess, my poor friend Kyle, who we share a building with, because we're about to split our new $6,400 tax bill down the middle. Him and I is the only tenants of the building. Um, and, um, he wasn't even aware of it yet because he hadn't happened to run into the landlord. And I spoke with the landlord and he said, I just haven't had time to tell people yet, which is true. So what's happening is that bit by bit, these tenants are going to become aware of what's happening, these small businesses. So it's not this sort of, unfortunately, it's not this groundswell of people all becoming aware at once. The first I saw of it was the fellow who owns Worst on 4th Street in Mission. He posted it right front and center on his huge sign outside his restaurant before the, the provincial election. And it was you know, 2015 tax um, bill this and 2019 property tax bill this. And I think it was like 15 grand to 94 grand or something crazy. Um, and I thought, oh, interesting, but it's not really a provincial issue. So why is he posting that now? But I mean, as we all know, provincial and civic obviously overlap a little bit when it comes to property tax. But, you know, at the end of the day, I just don't feel like it's my puzzle to solve, Rob. I just feel yeah. like it's just like... You know, the first thing I think is, well, yeah, like figure this out. I don't want to rebate. I don't want to refund or some promise of a grant because I'm not a charity case. And I haven't built a business in Calgary for 10 years. I've had several. I've been an entrepreneur in the city for 10 years. I grew up here. I chose to come back here because I love this city. And I also have been marketing Inglewood as part of my business for nine years. I started the Inglewood YYC uh, Twitter account nine years ago. Um, and uh, and I have never run my business hoping for a grant or a refund or a rebate. And that is absolutely not what I'm about to start doing based on whatever God knows plan they're coming up with is some refund. Right. Just give me stability. That's it. Let me run my business. Sure. And that's not unreasonable. But, you know, you, you hit on something because... You know, Inglewood is, is such a neat story. And, and you know, the, what that neighborhood's turned into. And the, and the people who live there, the people who work there are very passionate about it. You, yours mm-hmm. is the kind of business that you could go elsewhere in Calgary. Heck, you could even go outside of Calgary and still be able to do what you do. There's obviously for you some meaning and value to being where you are and your connection to that community. But what's mm-hmm. the concern here? I mean, if, if we start to drive businesses out of communities like Inglewood, are we reversing a lot of those, those positives and, and everything that that neighborhood has, has achieved? Mm-hmm. No, it's so true, and, and uh, I, I guess we're certainly not the only ones feeling it. I think any business owner in 17th Ave, if you ask them what their taxes are, your jaw will drop. I found out what Tim Hortons, for example, on 17th Ave is paying in property tax, and I tell you it's a million double-doubles that you got to sell to pay that on an annual basis. And um, 
when I was a journalist 10 years ago, I wrote a story on a friend's store who was closing on 17th Ave for the same reason and then come on in the big box stores. So, you know, as soon as these market forces are at play and the valuations of these smaller businesses or these buildings go higher, but ideally that does not happen with the help of the city is the point here. Um, but that's when we start to lose these character spaces and these, the vibrancy of these communities and everybody complains that there's no more mom and pop shops. Well, okay, this is exactly the starting point. There's a lot of people from Vancouver weighing in yesterday on Twitter saying like, yeah, welcome to the problem in our neighborhood where now speculators come in because someone the city has stamped my building is valued at 2.2 million which is crazy it would never sell for that not a not in any world um but that becomes when that's when the turnover starts to happen and beyond that that's when the the mom and pop shops move out because they of course can't hack it um and and the one of one of the funnier things i saw yesterday though was someone suggesting that we all take our businesses back downtown where the tax breaks are massive and we can all do much better and then they'll move into inglewood and we'll have the same problem downtown you know I know it's it's frustrating. Um, so where, where does this go from here? As you say, I mean, at least your, your city councilor seems receptive to to these concerns. I, I think I think they're mm-hmm. well intentioned here in in trying to finally figure this out. Although you know, it feels like they've kind of dithered up until this point. I, I don't know, Kelly. Where, what happens next here? Yeah, I can't disagree with you on that, Rob. I feel like, um, I mean, I'm not in council chambers. I know that I pull all-nighters trying to run a business myself, and I, this is an issue that none of us want to have to dive into, but of course we will if we need to. So I can't speak to what they've been talking about for what I've understood, I understand now to be three years of being aware of this problem. Um, what I have read in some of the columns and opinion pieces is really, really disheartening about what, how they saw this coming. And now after these assessments have been mailed out, and these tax bills have been mailed out, they're now trying to band-aid it with a rebate of some sort. I mean, I don't have to spell out how ridiculous and frustrating that is as a taxpayer to hear. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, part of it is for sure just letting us Letting us run our businesses the way that we should be able to in a normal society, especially the so-called entrepreneurial town and and lifeblood of Calgary, as job creators, as, you know, vibrancy makers, community builders, I think to myself, my business has, we don't use education, we don't use healthcare, we don't even have garbage pickup. We didn't have, you know, water, as I said in my Facebook video, for the whole month of March. Meanwhile, my family, like, we have a lot of that stuff. My kids, my, you know... um, so maybe there's a shift more to residential. A friend of mine said to me yesterday, like, can you believe how much the residential property tax increase was? And I said, well, yeah, but I mean, I'll take a $50, $60 increase any day, sorry, over the $2,700 a month increase my business is about to face by the mafia who's not even got my back. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. I think the overspending, it does, I don't even have to point that out. I think we're all aware of it. Um, I want to be as socially progressive as the next person, and uh, it sucks when you start to find yourself preaching conservatism when it comes to or siding, I think, in that regard as a progressive human and person when um, all I want is fiscal responsibility but and I want social programs just like the next person. Um, but there's a lot of things that I, I, I know we can all say, I couldn't afford that in my personal budget, so why the heck can we afford it in our city budget? Like, come on, you know? Well, Kelly, appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about all of this, and uh, let's hope the next time we talk that um, it's a little bit better story to tell, I guess, than, than this. Thanks, but uh, all the best, Kelly. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. There you go. Kelly Duty, as the uh, founder and owner of Social School, a uh, business based uh, out of Inglewood, socialschool.io. So they'll try to find ways of coping. Other businesses may not be able to do so. And so then what happens? What happens to those businesses? What happens to the neighborhood?
Well, as we mentioned, uh, some good news for the folks uh, who live in high level, the opportunity to, to go back to their homes today, but obviously needing to be ready to leave uh, again on short notice as we're still dealing with pretty massive wildfire uh, up in northern Alberta around that community. And it was big enough that we were all choking on the smoke on Friday that was blowing down from northern Alberta. Now, fortunately, the wind shifted and the rest of the weekend was was rather pleasant. But obviously, there, there's a lot of concern about whether this is going to be more common, not just these massive fires, but uh, for the rest of the province, even far removed from the blaze itself, having those, those smoky days, those days with reduced air quality, reduced visibility makes for a rather unpleasant summer. So we've had, obviously, large forest fires in our history. Back to the uh, 1950 wildfire uh, in Alberta, I believe still, uh, is Canada's largest on record. But we've had some pretty big ones in recent years. And there is concern maybe that this is becoming, maybe not the norm, but increasingly common. So, what's the reason for it? Seems like it's a combination of a lot of factors, perhaps our forestry management practices, the lack of preventative measures. But how much of it is attributable to a change in climate? Are parts of Alberta becoming warmer and drier? Well, joining us uh, for more on uh, these important questions is uh, wildfire expert uh, Mike Flanagan. He's a professor at the University of Alberta. Professor Flanagan, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Oh, my pleasure. Um, now, obviously, this is an area you've done a lot of research on. In terms, then, of the number of fires, the size of, of these fires, are, are we seeing uh, unusual activity in, in recent years? So number of fires is a bit misleading because the way we've recorded fires have changed over the years by jurisdiction. So I generally look at area burned, and in Canada, our area burned has approximately doubled since the early 70s. If you take a 10-year average, there's a lot of year-to-year variability because the weather, you know, some years are cooler and wetter and some years are warmer and drier so um, we get a lot more fires in the warm dry years so there's a lot of variability but we are seeing more fire on average is it is it just alberta i mean obviously we've seen some big fires in bc in recent years but is it an issue in, in other parts of the country too or is there anything unique to alberta so alberta is unique in a number of ways um first it's the only jurisdiction where may is the busiest month over 50% of our area burn typically occurs in May, and 80% of the fires are started by people uh, because our lightning season doesn't usually get going until later in May. Whereas the rest of Canada, it's either June or July, except for BC's. The other exception, their busiest month is August. So, uh, you know, having a busy May is not unusual for us, but this year was an ex- exceptional active year. We've got over 600,000 hectares, which is far above the five-year, 10-year average or any average. You know, like it's, it's not the busiest May that we've ever had, but it's, it's up there. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there were those who were, were warning maybe that, you know, we, we were building up to this kind of a situation. We weren't doing enough on, on the prevention side, controlled burns, et, et cetera, to, to prevent these, these kinds of massive wildfires. So how much can we, we blame governments for in terms of not taking those kinds of steps in terms of our forestry management practices? So 
you know, we are seeing more fire in the landscape and more impacts from those fires. And, you know, I, I see climate change as being the primary driver for the additional fire activity on the landscape. And in terms of impacts, is a combination of climate change and the fact that we have more people working and living in the forest. So when, you know, an area burns, it's more likely to hit a community or infrastructure or industrial area, so having an impact. For in this province, forestry practices and other uh, suppression activities has had little, if any, impact on how much fire we, we see. It's, uh, in other jurisdictions, there may be arguments for it, or perhaps in the Rocky Mountains, fire suppression has kept fire down until maybe recently. So it's, you know, in our forest, you know, there are three things you need for a fire. You need the stuff that burns, uh, grass, needles, leaves, shrubs, trees, how much, how dry. Those are all important things. Uh, ignition, people and lightning, and weather, hot, dry, windy weather, though just dry and windy will work as well. You get all three and you get fire. And as we move into the future, there will always be fuel, there will always be ignition. Can we do more in prevention? Absolutely. Um, and it looks like there'll be even more conducive weather in the future. Well, yeah, let's talk about weather then and, and changing climate and how that, that contributes. Is it is it simply that average temperatures or is it average temperatures at certain times of year? What, what have we seen over the last few decades? Okay, so um, now here we're talking about area burned over an area like northern Alberta for a month or a fire season. So we're talking about the fire season and not an individual fire like the Chuckay Creek fire where wind direction and wind speed become really critical. Yeah. But we've found in others as well for United States and Canada, Alaska, Russia, the warmer they get, we get, the more fire we see. And people say, well, why is temperature so important? Three reasons, L- longer fire seasons. And in Alberta, we've seen this. Officially, our fire season starts March 1st. It used to be April 1st. Now, some years we have snow on the ground and, you know, the fire season doesn't start March 1st in reality. But on average, we're seeing earlier fire starts. Second, the the warmer we get, the more lightning we see. All things being equal, the more lightning, the more fires. And this is particularly important for BC, our neighbor, where we get a lot of smoke from during the summer because lightning is the primary uh, agent to start fires in British Columbia. Whereas pretty well the rest of Canada, the rest of the provinces, it's human-caused fires. Right. And the third reason is the warmer it gets, the atmosphere gets very effective at sucking the moisture out of the fuel. Like If you put a towel on your clothesline, if you still have a clothesline, a hot, dry, windy day just dries that towel really quickly. And it's doing the same thing to our fuels. Unless we see more rain in the future to compensate for this drying effect from warmer temperatures, we'll have drier fuels. Now, drier fuels are critical for the fire business because the drier the fuel, the easier it is for fires to start, to spread, and to burn more intensely because there's more fuel available to burn. And the more intense the fire is, the the more difficult to impossible it is to put that fire out. But... if it's just if it's just the you know in terms then of of the warmer climate, I mean southern Alberta has a warmer climate than northern Alberta, Montana, Wyoming have a warmer climate than Alberta, but it doesn't necessarily stand to reason that the fire risk gets greater as you go straight south. Well, it's 
there's a fuel issue too, like much of southern Alberta's agricultural rangelands. There are large fires in southern Alberta. They just often don't get much attention. The Granham Fire, which actually occurred in December, memory serves, spread 60 kilometers in one day and stopped at the town of Granham, thus the the name Granham Fire. So there can be large fires, and Montana has lots of fires as well. Um, So it's really, you know, also what's on the land. So agriculture crops are not as flammable as our forests are. So if you look at forests, you know, the warmer it is, it's got to be kind of hot, dry, and windy. And it's generally a few days. In Canada, 3% of our fires are bigger than 200 hectares. A hectare is about the size of a football field or soccer pitch. But those 3% burn 97% of the area burned. So it's really the extreme days. And, you know, these are just... You know, the last week or two, we've seen some really hot, dry, windy weather up northern Alberta. I know sometimes in Calgary it's been cooler and wetter than what they've been experiencing up north. But those are the days when all the activity happens. Now we're the weather's changing. We're getting into an unsettled period. And most of these fires will, won't grow much for the next week until the weather returns to hot, dry, and windy. So what about changing precipitation patterns then? Are we, are we, seeing, are we seeing less rain in, in the spring? Are we seeing less precipitation in the winter? So we're seeing a lot of variability. Um, you know, overall, as we warm, we expect to see some increase in precipitation but in Canada, but mostly at higher elevations uh, in the north, in the Arctic. And it, our models of the future are, do a decent job on temperature, but precipitation is much more challenging. And there's one more thing, there's a monkey wrench in the works here, and that's our jet stream. And our jet stream is changing, and instead of a fast-flowing river with highs and low-pressure systems moving through every three to five days, and if that happens, you get rain every three to five days and you don't have a fire problem. But if the jet stream gets lazy or weak, then it's like a slow-moving river with eddies and whirlpools, and the pattern stagnates. And where you get the ridges, you get warm, dry conditions that persist, and you get fire and drought. And that's exactly what happened in 2017 and 2018 in British Columbia, all the way down to California, because there was an upper ridge parked over it. Conversely, where there's a low and trough and it's stalled, you get flooding and rain, like we've seen in the Mississippi Basin and out east this year. So ridge trough stalling really dictates where the precipitation will be and how much there will be. So, look, in terms of longer-term challenges, I think, you know, it's fair to say that it underscores the potential challenges caused by climate change and and why we should be part of a global effort to combat that. But in the short term, I mean, is is there, are are there steps we can take to try to reduce the risk or, or mitigate this to any great extent? Sure. So, three ingredients, day-to-day weather, until the global community does something about climate change, we really can't do much about it. Ignition agents, lightning, we can't do much. Uh, human cause, every human caused fire is preventable. Yeah. We do a lot. And to the credit of the Alberta government, they did have a, a fire ban and an ATV ban um, for the long weekend. And yes, we had a lot of fires, but if your listeners recall 2011, uh, a similar situation, kind of a dry, windy weekend, not as hot as it was this year, but there was 160 fires started that weekend. So it actually 
did make a difference. And, the, and there's also a program called Fire Smart Canada, and there's seven disciplines to help make homeowners and communities more fire resistant. Not fireproof, that's impossible, but more fire resistant. And among those is the fuel ingredient. So vegetation management around communities. Conifers are very flammable. You may have seen video from British Columbia or Fort McMurray. The whole tree is engulfed in flame, and there's a rain of burning embers. And that's how a fire generally enters a community, is that rain of burning embers lands on something flammable, starts the house on fire, and then the houses are close together, domino effect, the way we go. So if we can manage the conifers around communities, and the Alberta government and the B.C. government have given money for fire smart activity to reduce the flammable fuels around communities. We can look at building materials that are more flame resistant, town planning, putting green areas. Green grass is a really great fire break. So golf courses, baseball diamonds, soccer fields around the edge of town. Mm-hmm. So you, you need a multi-pronged approach, but we can, and you know, to the government's credit, we are doing things. Well, that's that's encouraging. Uh, we'll leave it there. Dr. Flanagan, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate your insight on this. Okay. Thanks, Rob. All right. Take care. Uh, that is Dr. Mike Flanagan, professor with the Department of Renewable Resources, University of Alberta, director of the Western Partnership for Wildland Fire Science, located at the U of M or at CanadaWildfire.org. They're on Twitter, at Canada Wildfire. Medical misinformation is a big problem these days, and there are various platforms that exist for people to spout these views. And I want to get into some of that. Now, we've got a trial underway this week. It's the retrial, in fact, of David and Colette Stefano in 2016 were convicted of failing to provide the necessaries of life in the death of their child, Ezekiel, who died as a result of bacterial meningitis, treatable bacterial meningitis, had he only been taken to see a doctor. Instead, he was treated with so-called natural remedies. Now, as I say, they were convicted in 2016. It was upheld by the Alberta Court of Appeal. The Supreme Court of Canada, however, ruled that there was fault in the way the judge had instructed the jury and ordered a retrial. So that's underway this week. It's a judge-only trial. But certainly David Stefan in particular, through it all, has really refused to take any kind of accountability and has tried to make himself into a martyr and has used the attention of the trial as a platform to spout his, what I think are are troubling and dangerous views on so-called alternative health. There's a story this week about a Montreal naturopath and the commentaries that she's posting on YouTube, anti-vaccine commentaries that are completely at odds with the medical evidence. But YouTube refuses to do anything about it. So how do we counter all of this? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program Timothy Caulfield at the University of Alberta. He's Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy. He's Research Director of the Health Law Institute and a professor in the Faculty of Law in the School of Public Health. He is the host of A User's Guide to Cheating Death on Netflix. He is also author of the book, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? Tim, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks, Rob. Let's start with the trial of David and Colette Stefan. Obviously, this is a tragic situation, the death of a child, and I'm, I'm sure they do mourn that child. But we, we've got some issues here where, you know, the justice system needs to, to hold people accountable for what happened. On the other hand, th- this has really given the couple, or David in particular, a platform to spout what I think is fair to call some, some pretty anti-scientific views. Yeah, I, I think you've outlined the challenge perfectly you know on the one hand let's hold these people accountable let's create a precedent um 
On the other hand, he seems to love to be in the limelight. He loves this kind of situation. This is a platform, and, and we're going to hear a lot from him over the next four weeks. And if you go to his Facebook page, and unfortunately I do that, <laughs> it's infuriating, um, you, you, you hear his conspiracy theories, right? And he's created a community that, that loves that stuff. So, uh, yeah, on the one hand, accountability. On the other hand, we're giving this guy a platform. Right, and 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 he's used it, and we've seen how he's used it, right? Where even the, when when the system did hold him accountable the first time, where he was found guilty, obviously the Supreme Court ordered a, a new trial. But you know, the, it, it allows him to to take on this this martyrdom status, right? That the, the system is is out to get him, and and here's other ways that the system is is out to get you. I mean, it plays into his message, but that that shouldn't deter us from from holding him accountable if we believe we need to, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't think we should be distracted by that that noise. Uh, and, and and he really does. You know, it's re- it's worth emphasizing this. He really has ramped up the conspiracy theory uh, language. Right? He's talking about you know a cover up. You know about how he needs to expose the corruption of the entire system. Alberta Health Services is, is withholding. And there's even almost this implication that they're tampering with evidence. Right? And of course, the judge has a bias. So he's really setting up this this powerful story right the, about about how he's being persecuted which by the way will mean no matter what the result is he's going to be able to spin the story right if he wins he'll say he's been vindicated see there was corruption if he loses he'll say see there's yeah. been corru- there's corruption and bias and that's why i was convicted so we can't i don't think we can just let that distract us from 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 moving this case forward in in a in a way that that you know, gets to the bottom of it. But but in addition to that, I think it's really important to emphasize we shouldn't overinterpret the results. Like win or lose, it's going to likely turn on some pretty technical legal matters, right? And so even if he wins, it does not mean that his pseudoscience is correct, right? And and right. that often happens with court cases, right? Court cases can turn on very technical legal legal matters that are. Uh, separate from the relevant science and evidence. Right. I mean, ultimately, the takeaway, regardless of what happens at the trial, I, I think it's you're speaking to here, that, that a child who is suffering from bacterial meningitis needs medical attention. And we have ways of treating bacterial meningitis. It, it needn't be a death sentence for a child. Exactly right. And, and you know, the, the strategies proposed by, you know, naturopaths for fighting these things don't necessarily work, you know, almost certainly don't don't work. Um, and uh, that this kind of distrust of, of conventional medicine is not necessarily supported by the evidence. So, you know, I think we have to remember that, right, not let him take us down his rabbit hole. Well, you talk about that rabbit hole. I mean, the first trial was only three years ago in 2016, but it almost seems as though this problem of, of medical misinformation is, has gotten worse since then. Is that your sense? Yeah, for sure. I actually think this trial is more relevant today than it was in 2016, right? It really has become, and we've talked about this before, right? This really has become the era of misinformation. So, you know, I think this is more relevant today, but at the same time, it is uh, more challenging to, uh, because, you know, the era of misinformation is thriving precisely because these kind of polarized discussions that people like uh, David Stephan fuel.
Right. And, and there are other people out there that have an even bigger platform than, than David Stefan does. I mean, we got the story this week about this uh, YouTuber who calls herself Montreal Healthy Girl. And, and there have been all kinds of, of experts raising the alarm about the sorts of things she's been putting out on YouTube about vaccines. Pretty clearly erroneous and dangerous, even, I would say, information. Uh, and we got the situation now where YouTube is basically saying, Google is saying that, well, you know, we're, we're not going to take this down. So how, how do we combat this stuff? Well, first, I think it's important to emphasize that, you know, this does matter. You know, some of your listeners may, may say, well, you know, smart people don't listen to that baloney. This is just, you know, it's a Darwin <laughs> coming, playing out. That's not the case. There's really compelling research that shows that just being exposed to that information, just having that stuff out there circulating uh, can be problematic. You know, it's called the availability bias, right? You know, you, you hear about something enough, it, it starts to have more credibility. So we do need to do something about it. But there is this fascinating tension. You know, I'm a big I'm a big believer in freedom of speech, right? And and so there is a really fascinating tension that I think our society is going to need to wrestle with and how to deal with these with these kinds of issues on social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You know, I, I think something needs to be done, uh, but it is going to be a challenge. What well, is? And ideally, we could counter misinformation with accurate information. You know, from from YouTube's perspective, I mean, I, I can see it both ways. If, you know, if I ran a platform, I wouldn't want to be giving a platform to people like that. But as you say, there is the, the free speech side of things, too. So where, where do we find a balance? Yeah, there's this worry, right, that there can be these individuals sort of unilaterally deciding what the truth is. And, and, and that is tough in a liberal democracy to have that kind of unilateral uh, approach. You know, there have been some suggestions that, you know, that you have warning signs or that you have suggestions that you create algorithms that ensure that misinformation doesn't pop up near the top of a search engine. You know, I think there are things that that can be done in a transparent manner. I think that's important so we know what's going on uh, that will at least make the situation better. Because this isn't going to be one of those issues where you just uh, solve it with one uh, solution, one tool. We need to bring everything we can to bear uh, on this problem. Yeah. Look, and and ultimately this is about the kinds of information that that the parents are getting and the decisions they're making about their their children's health care. And we we want them to be making the best possible decisions. You wrote an interesting op-ed recently about the point at which maybe young people can start to take some of that on themselves. And this, we were seeing, I don't know if you call it a, a growing movement just yet, but, but teenagers who were taking it upon themselves to try to fix those mistakes and, and get themselves those vaccines that they were denied when they were younger. At, at what point is it, is it reasonable to, to, to allow that, encourage that? Well, I, I, think, I think you're right. And, and there's some evidence that supports that, that, that there are, you know, teenagers are, you know, it's the information age and, and they may be, you know, stronger advocates for, for science. Um, and uh, if, if, a, if a teenager is competent um, to make their own decisions and their consent is necessary and sufficient, you don't need to get the consent of parents. And that's the law in Alberta. Um, and, you know, that some parents may find that scary, but that is the law. And, and we don't have an age of consent. So someone, uh, some, if a kid is, is intelligent and competent and can understand the risks and benefits, then they are the individual that should be approached, and they're the individuals that, that can consent. And, and I think that we need to remind ourselves of that. And that also speaks to the importance, by the way, of educating teenagers, right? Not indoctrinating them, but educating them and, and, and letting them have the critical thinking skills that, that will make them good decision makers. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it almost seems counterintuitive to think that the younger people might be more media savvy these days, but I, I think there's something to that in a lot of ways. 
I think so too. You know, and and anecdotally here, I'm not using science. I'm being a hypocrite, but anecdotally, I, I have the opportunity to speak to uh, a lot of teenagers, uh, you know, at, at public forums and stuff. And you really get that sense, right? They're they're frustrated by the misinformation. They're frustrated by the, you know this anti-vax dilemma that that is spreading. You know, they want to have a voice, and and you know what? They do have a voice, and they should be acting on it. Well, maybe a sign of hope uh, amid all the doom and gloom. Professor Caulfield, we'll leave it there. Always appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thanks a lot, Rob. There you go. Timothy Caulfield of the University of Alberta, also uh, the host of the Netflix show, A User's Guide to Cheating Death, and the author of the book is Gwyneth Paltrow, Wrong About Everything. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.